We are continuing our verse-by-verse, week-by-week study through the first book in our Bibles. And we arrive at, this morning, one of the darkest and most troubling chapters, not only in the book of Genesis, but in the entirety of the Bible. And I confess to you, were I not preaching verse-by-verse through Genesis, I would never choose to preach this chapter. I would never choose to approach this topic. It is a chapter that includes the rape of a teenage girl. It's a chapter that includes her subsequent kidnapping and enslavement. It includes the ambivalence of her negligent father, the desecration of the sign of the covenant of the Hebrew people, and the violent and destructive revenge and retaliation that's wrought. God is not mentioned at all in this chapter. And the absence of God in the chapter is indicative of the absence of God in the choices and the decisions that have been made throughout the chapter. And yet, this nearly 4,000-year-old event is incredibly applicable to our lives today. It's incredibly instructive for us. I've entitled my sermon this, Enabling the Corruption of Our Children. And I've chosen the terminology of this title very specifically and intentionally, particularly the word enabling. Many of you have probably heard this term, enable, uh, being tossed about in our society. She enables his abuse. He enables her addiction. The idea of this term enabling is that the choices of one person fosters an environment where the destructive patterns of a loved one can continue to happen and flourish. And here's the thing about most enablers, they don't really know they're enabling. I don't typically look to the American Psychological Association for guidance, but I thought their description of enabling is particularly helpful here. Here's how they describe it. Enabling is this, patterns within close relationships that support any harmful or problematic behavior and make it easier for the behavior to continue. And and let me say at the onset, I don't believe any God-fearing, Jesus-loving, sane parent would ever enable the defilement and the corruption of their precious children. However, decisions we make, negligence that we perpetuate, Blind obliviousness to the continual influence of our society at large and its influence on the emotional, the spiritual, and the moral development of our children is all too common in the church today. The most precious commodity we have been given to oversee in our lives is our children. Therefore, the care, the intentional concern we devote towards them should correspond proportionally to their value. We, we should see that they take precedence over our careers. They take precedent over our knickknacks and paddywhacks in our homes. They take precedence over our possessions, our retirement accounts, our hobbies and leisure activities. We're going to see today in Jacob's life as a father the dad of the home, the patriarch of the Hebrew people, that he fails miserably. He makes horrible choices that do, in fact, enable 
the corruption and the desecration of his children. He demonstrates apathy and passivity that would result in their defilement, the ones he's been charged to lead and protect. Last week, I told you as we considered the reunion of Jacob and Esau together that I wanted to approach Jacob in chapter 33 with what I called hopeful realism. I want to believe the best in Jacob. And we saw some really positive things in Jacob's life, realizing that Jacob is still growing, he's still maturing, he's still learning, he's still developing. I didn't want to approach chapter 33 with just this deep cynicism, questioning every action and motive he had. I did, however, warn you last week that at the end of chapter 33, Jacob made some decisions that show signs the old Jacob was still kind of coming out. And in fact, the decisions he makes at the end of chapter 33 really set up the calamities that are experienced in chapter 24 in his family. We won't read the entirety of the chapter, but we'll consider it as we go through what I have as three points this morning, three realities I want us to consider as we think about this enabling of the corruption of Jacob's children. The first one is this, number one, unguarded compromise. Unguarded compromise. Jacob, as the father, makes some compromises in the home with the world that turn out to be incredibly harmful for his family. And I call it unguarded compromise because he's not proactive. He's not vigilant in the protection of, of his children. He doesn't do things to protect them, but rather his lack of doing things would cause them harm. And we really see this in a couple of ways. First of all, in his proximity to the world, in Jacob's proximity to the world. Now, when Jacob was living in Mesopotamia, the north region, his father-in-law's land, Laban's land, God came to Jacob and he said, it's time to get up and it's time to go with your wives, your children, and your possessions and go back to the land of Canaan. That's what he said in chapter 31, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. Now that phrase, land of your fathers, is a pretty broad statement. It's the land of Canaan. So last week I told you that he did in fact do that. He moved into Shechem, which was technically within the borders of Canaan land. He had finally arrived back home. However, it's right on the edge of obedience, which means it's right on the edge of disobedience. Because what could be inferred is that Jacob really was going to be instructed to move to Bethel, about a day's journey from Shechem. In fact, as Jacob is recounting God's call to Leah and to Rachel, here's how he elaborated on it to them in verse 13 of the same chapter. He said, I am the God of Bethel. This is God speaking. I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So it could be inferred that what God meant for him to do was to go back to Bethel, to go back there. Instead, he goes to Shechem. In fact, the very next chapter, chapter 35, God doesn't leave any question about the command. He says, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell here. That's the intention. But he didn't. He settled in Shechem, right on the border, right on the edge. And not only did he just dwell there, he bought property there. He put down roots there. This is going to be where I stay. Look at verse 33 at the end of the chapter. This was a portent of what was to come. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So technically, I'm obeying. On his way from Padan Aram, and he camped 
before the city. Does that last phrase sound ominous at all to you? It's very similar to the language Moses, the author of the book of Genesis, used earlier in chapter 13 as he's describing the parting of ways of Abram and his nephew Lot. Abram said, you can choose any of the land you want to choose. And Lot looked at the very fertile fields of the plains and says, oh, I'm going to dwell down there. And notice how Moses described it in chapter 13. Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom, right on the edge. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And we know how things went down with Lot. And now here is Jacob following a similar practice, right on the edge of the, of the city. And this living on the edge would be really what would bring about the failures in his family. Why? Because it's an unguarded compromise. The evil of the Canaanites was well known, but he determined to settle there on the edge of this godless city. Jacob's compromise is troubling. He's too close to the edge. He's right on the precipice with his family. Just one push will send them tumbling over the edge. I think Jacob's compromise here and his living on the edge of the world is really analogous to, way, to the way many of us as Christians can live our lives. We can profess allegiance to Christ. We can profess, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a Christian. Yet we embrace elements of the world. The philosophy seems to be, well, let's live, live sufficiently separate from the world so that we can, in fact, be regarded as Christians, but let's just live near enough to the world so we don't lose out on some of the opportunities and advantages that comes with the world. And friends, I'm preaching to myself here this morning. Know that. We have this danger of living on the edge, of pitching our tent on the border of Shechem. We get as close as we can to the world without being considered worldly by our Christian peers. How does this approach work for our families? I would venture a guess that no Christian parent would allow their children to use profanity in the home, right? But yet, I don't see any problem with allowing all types of different media that is overwhelmed with vulgar language and profanity, whether it's music, to just go right into the earbuds of our children. Or I'm sure we would not allow our children to carry on sexually immoral relationships in our household, but yet we can watch the latest binge-worthy television show with our kids where that type of sexual immorality is rampant. We put little to no boundaries on what we allow our children to ingest. This is a dangerous thing to do. You see, the Christian ambition, the Christian aim, is not to live as near to the world as possible and somehow be thought of as current, or relevant, contemporary. The Christian aim is to live as close to God as possible. So we will be holy even as he is holy. So Jacob's compromise here is first seen in his proximity to the world, right on the edge. And then we see the second area of compromise, his protection of his children. His protection of his children, or lack thereof. We should not be surprised to read that the first thing that happens to Jacob when he settled in his family, verse 1 could be so descriptive of so many young girls today. 
Notice what the Bible says in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. She's just hanging out with other girls her age. That's all she's doing. What's the big deal? Come on, Dad. I'm just going to hang with my friends. Now that phrase is not as innocent as it sounds on the, the surface. She's likely, according to scholars, around 15 years old. This young country girl is wandering about in a strange city with people she really doesn't know, unsupervised, unaccompanied by her parents or even one of her older brothers. Verse 1 is intended to sound alarms in our conscience that something bad is about to happen. Dinah is left to roam the world without any supervision. What is her father thinking? Why would he allow her to wander off like this among people who are so contrary to the truth of God? Come on, Dad, don't be such a prude. I'm just going out with some other girls my age. Here is a young lady brought up in a godly home who desires friendship with the world. And her father and mother don't seem to be restraining her at all. She does not recognize the threats that abound. So what happens? My friends, if you're unfamiliar with this story, verse 2 is shocking. Here's what happens in Dinah's life. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, and he lay with her, and he humiliated her. This is nothing less than a forcible, violent, sexual assault. It all started, those four verbs, he saw her. He seized her. That word is originally used in the Hebrew Bible all the way back at the beginning of Genesis. It's the same verb used of Eve when she took the fruit from the tree. She seized it. She broke it off its stem so she could consume it. And here is Shechem, and he seizes young Dinah, who's just out hanging out with the girls, and he rapes her, defiles her, humiliated her. But this is actually quite predictable because the Canaanites were known notoriously for their sexual immorality. And friends, the same mindset exists today. In our modern form of dating, most young men think when a young girl consents to go out on a date with her, it means she's giving her acceptance of doing sexual favors for him. On the first date. There are all too many Shechem's looking for vulnerable Dinah's who they can abuse. And you don't even have to see them in person with apps like Tinder. You could just swipe right, which indicates, I want to have sex with you. The Bible despises sexual immorality. It speaks about it again and again and again. Why? Because it is such a strong, enticing allurement. And with Pornography, just a tap away. This is irrespective of your marital status and your age. So let me give you parenthetically here some, some steps, some tools to help you 
flee sexual immorality. First of all, as a Christian, remember that God is always with you. He's always with you. He hears everything you say. He sees everything you do. David said, if I go down into Sheol, into the grave, God is there with me. You're taking God with you wherever you go. Let that reality inform you. It'll be a persevering and preserving reality in your mind. Here's the second thing. Take your thoughts captive. Take your thoughts captive. The whole battle is in the mind. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In fact, even Job in the Old Testament recognized this. Look at Job 31.1. He said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze, look longingly at a virgin? Here's the third thing. Christian, meditate on the sufferings of Christ. As a Christian, this ought to be really our strongest motivation. When we think about how my sin impacted Jesus, it was my sin that brought upon him the intense grief of Gethsemane where he sweat great drops of blood. It was my sin that brought the beatings upon his back. It was my sin that put the nails in his wrist. Consider and meditate on the sufferings of Christ for our sin. Here's the fourth thing, avoid idleness. The Puritans used to love to talk about this, how we should not be idle. That means don't don't just sit around doing nothing. Idleness, as they say, is the devil's workshop. Here's the fifth thing. Understand that it's impossible to be too strict with regard to sexual purity. That's an impossibility. I think I'm getting a little too strict with guarding my sexual purity. No such thing. Notice how the Apostle Paul put it in Ephesians 5. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, remember the, the sin of covetousness in the Ten Commandments? Don't covet your neighbor's Wife must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The original Greek intends there shouldn't even be a hint of these things among Christians. Translation, there's no strictness that's too far. Here's the sixth thing. Pray for strength. Come to God and admit, I can't do it, God. I am unable to free myself from this prison. And seventh, avoid unhealthy company. Avoid unhealthy company. This is really what is applicable in the situation with Dinah. Avoid situations where you can be taken advantage of. Friends, if you have friends and relationships with people with low moral standards, it will be impossible to live with high moral standards around them. Impossible. This is what Jacob was being and doing by being too careless with the world. He allowed his young daughter to go out into the big bad city with no knowledge of who she was with or what she was doing. And friends, is this not the description of our age? The dude pulls up in the family's driveway, doesn't even get out of the car, just sends a text, I'm here. And the 15-year-old girl leaves, goes out into the car, drives away, and the parents have no idea where she's going, who she's with, what she'll be doing. Listen, I have had three teenage daughters and two teenage sons. I know there have been times they felt I was too intrusive. I know there have been times that they felt that no other parent is like this. I know there have been times they thought I was overbearing, nosy. Where are you going? Who are you going with? Who's going to be there? What time are you going to be back? What adults are there? 
Anybody you're hanging around with known to use drugs or alcohol? Here's the deal. Listen, friends. As long as my children are in my home, there is zero expectation of privacy. Hey, let me see your phone. Who you've been texting lately? Oh, this is my phone, Dad. I pay the bill. Give me your phone. Zero expectation that I'm not going to track your location and maybe show up there unannounced. And if you think that's too intrusive, if you think that's being an overbearing dad, ask Dinah if she wished her dad would have been a little more intrusive post-rape. But this is the danger that lurks in our world. It lurks in our homes. Do you monitor everything that comes across your kids' screens? Do you know the apps they're on that immediately delete the pictures that somebody else sends them? Far too many Christian parents give their children unfettered access to everything. My friends, these things ought not to be among those who name Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, I want to let you know something. I'm not speaking to you from some ivory tower. I've made more faults as a dad than I care to admit. I've failed miserably on numerous occasions. I'm so thankful that the grace of God has restored what the locust of my negligence has destroyed in my children's lives. As I mentioned in my introduction, God is not mentioned in chapter 34. He's completely absent from the descriptions of all the goings-on, and that's really the problem. As we walk in this unguarded compromise in the world, we keep God at arm's length. We keep His commands at the periphery. Throughout the history of Israel, the prophets were sent to them time and again, generation after generation, and they would give the same message. Don't pervert your faith with the gods of this world. Don't bow down to them. Don't build altars to them. And certainly, don't sacrifice your children to those idols. Friends, the same clarion call needs to be spoken with a prophetic warning today to the church. And giving that warning, proclaiming that announcement, is loving. The apostle of love, Apostle John, he perhaps put it best in this prophetic warning. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this is the first problem we see in this chapter is Jacob's proximity and compromise with the world, which led to the lack of protection of his own children. But that leads to the second issue I want us to see from this passage. Number two, uninterested concern. Uninterested concern. As the account continues, surprisingly, after raping Jacob's daughter Dinah, Shechem says, I'm in love. How twisted. Look at verse 3. And his soul, this is Shechem, was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Of course, she was locked up in his home and couldn't leave. She was a sex slave. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. 
Now this, I should tell you, is not the normal response of a sexual predator for his victim. The typical response of a sexual predator towards his victim is hatred. After the act, anger, derision. But Shechem, he thinks he's in love. He doesn't even know what love is. And we can kind of read between the lines here of what's going on. Shechem is the prince. His father is the king. He goes to daddy to try to clean up the royal mess he's made once again. Yeah, dad, I, I violated her, yeah. But I want to marry her now. I know Dinah. She, I want her to be my wife. Can you do that for me, daddy? It's an all too familiar story of an influential, powerful father going behind his decadent son to clean up his royal mess. So how does Jacob respond to the news? His daughter's been raped. She's been defiled. It seems uninterested, concerned. Look at verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, and his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Jacob doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't take any action. He just waits until the, the sons come in from tending the flock in the field. When they come home, they take charge. Rather than Jacob leading the way, he abdicates the responsibility of the father to the sons. He should be leading this whole venture, not them. Now, we've seen this before in Jacob's life. If you'll remember when the baby battle was happening between Leah and Rachel, he just kind of takes a back seat and, seat and doesn't offer any leadership, doesn't offer any direction, just lets them fight among themselves. And here he is showing this typical passivity, uninterested concern. How damaging is it when dads act this way? Now, part of the reason why Jacob may have shown this uninterested concern for the welfare of his daughter is revealed to us actually in the first verse, in the way Moses writes the chapter. He begins by telling us in the inspiration of the Spirit that Dinah is the daughter of Leah. But why point that out, that Dinah is Leah's daughter. Here's why. Because Jacob showed intense favoritism towards the children of Rachel. He didn't give a rip about the children of Leah, but his favorites were the children of Rachel. So later on, we'll see as we study Joseph's life, when he thinks Joseph has been mauled by a wild animal, he's distraught, he's despondent, he rips his clothes open and he weeps. When they suggest that Benjamin could be held back in Egypt, the, the other brothers say, no, no, you, you can do anything but that. If, if Benjamin is held back, it'll kill our father. That's why he points out that this is Leah's daughter. Hey, your daughter by Leah has been raped. Yeah, all right. Now, we may not be that extreme, but parents, we cannot show favoritism among our children. We should not demonstrate deference towards one over the other. That's really the underlying reason Jacob is too distant here. He's not concerned as he ought to be. Rather than being furious, he's just kind of, well, I'll let you guys work it out and figure it out. Now, we'll see in just a moment how his sons responded, what they did in place of their father, which was not good. It was unholy. It was unrighteous. But even at that, what was Jacob's primary concern when they executed their form of justice, perverted justice as it was? But look at the end of the chapter, verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, 
You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzite. My numbers are few, and if they gather against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Is he concerned about his daughter? No, he's concerned about his own reputation. He's concerned about his own prosperity. He's concerned about his own success. Never mind poor Dinah, who's been raped. Never mind the devastation that would be ravaged by his bloodthirsty sons. His only concern was his reputation and his personal prosperity. It could be distilled down to this one phrase, don't annoy the people of the world. That might reflect badly on me. And what a lesson for us, parents. Are we sacrificing the well-being of our children at the altar of success and prosperity and reputation? Christians, there may be very difficult vocational decisions you make for the sake of your children. There may be very difficult educational decisions you make for the safety and protection of your children. One of the parents may quit their job and homeschool a child who's vulnerable, but then we may not be able to live in the house we want to live in. So what? Your children we're talking about here. Jacob had this unguarded compromise, which created a situation where his daughter would be terribly violated. He then abdicates responsibility to her brothers to take matters into their own hands, and they've chosen to execute their own form of justice, which leads to the third and final thing I want us to consider from this passage. Number three, unholy covenant. As I mentioned, Shechem's father tries to clean up the royal mess made by the prince, his son. So what does he do? As, as the sons of Jacob, the brothers of Dinah, come to Shechem and his father, Nahor begins to work negotiations. And it goes something like this. Hey, guys, listen. My son, the prince, wants to marry your sister. He wants her to be his wife. Now, this could be really good for us, guys. It could be good for you. I mean, here's what we ought to do. Let's become one people. You guys marry our daughters, and we got some really fine daughters. And we'll let you marry, uh, and we'll marry your daughters. And y'all have some really fine daughters. And you know what? This will create an alliance where we can have in, enjoyment of commerce and business and trading. All of us can be prosperous. This is a mutually beneficial deal. Well, after the father begins to give these negotiations, then Shechem, the rapist, he gives his two cents. And what does he say? He comes to the brothers and he says, hey, and by the way, guys, you guys name the bride price. I'll pay whatever price you want me to pay so that I can keep Dinah. All right? So the brothers, they go and talk amongst themselves. Hey, he says, name whatever bride price we want and we can enter into this covenant with them. So they come back and they tell Shechem, okay, we've decided what the bride price is going to be. Here's what we want. Here's what we demand. Let's pick up the reading in verse 14. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to, to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. Amazingly, Hamor and Shechem say, that's a good, good idea. Let's circumcise ourselves. And somehow, Shechem must be the most slivery-tongued salesman ever. He convinces all the guys to go get circumcised. Are you kidding me? 
They all agreed to it. Now, this was not the brother's intention to enter into a covenant with them. This was all a ruse. It was all a ploy so that they could rain down destruction. Notice what happens in verse 25 and following. On the third day, when they were sore, you think, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and they came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Now, I know this is hard for us to imagine in our sophisticated times because we as a human race are so highly evolved from what they did 4,000 years ago. But these sons of Jacob are so filled with rage because of a legitimate injustice, they go and they burn the city. They go and they loot the Macy's department stores and burn down the used car lots. It's hard for us to imagine a disproportionate response to injustice. This was a severe overreaction. The one who should have been held responsible is Shechem, right? The sexual predator who raped their sister and was now holding her hostage. But instead, they respond with unrestrained retaliation and revenge. This is a violation of the ancient law known as lex talionis. Talionis is Latin for talon or teeth. This is a law that transcends cultures and, and countries. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In other words, punishment should match the crime, should be corresponding. If a woman is raped, which is a crime, the corresponding justice is not burn the city, kill all the men, take the women and children as slaves. That is not proportionate. This response by Dinah's brother, brothers were severely out of proportion, and it was every bit as sinful as Shechem's rape. Well, who's responsible for all this bloodshed? Obviously, Dinah's brothers. But ultimately, the weight of responsibility for this horrific act of violence falls at Jacob's feet. It's on his shoulders. He bears the final weight of culpability. Remember, Jacob, and only Jacob, has met with the living God. Jacob, and only Jacob, has had the vision, not once but twice, of angels from God showing his protection and his care. He abdicated his responsibility of leadership in the family, and he just sat back and watched to see how things are going to play out. Typical passivity. And we can be the same, can't we? We can have wonderful meetings with God. We can experience the fullness of God, but yet not living it out where it matters most in our home. So what are we to do? How are we to move forward? Well, I certainly don't want to preach a message this morning that has all of you leaving with heaps of great of guilt and condemnation on your heads. We appeal to the grace of God. We appeal to the grace of God. It's amazing how the next chapter, which we'll study next week, Lord willing, how it begins. Look at the first three verses of chapter 35. 
God, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household, he's taken leadership, and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. What do these verses represent in comparison to chapter 34? Remember, which is a godless chapter. The first reality mentioned in chapter 35 is God. This is the, the fierce Grace of God coming to Jacob after a familial failure of epic proportions. God shows up with incomprehensible grace. And God uses this epic failure to shock Jacob to Bethel. To drive him to this recommitment where he will build an altar at Bethel to have communion with God. God, like only he can do, brings great good out of horrific evil. And he still does that today. He's done that with me. Many of you could testify, could stand and say, how out of your brokenness and evil and wickedness and sexual immorality, God has brought you up out of the miry pit and set your feet on a rock and made your footsteps firm. Here's what I want you to understand, friends. Listen, if you have failure in your life, anybody have failure? It's unanimous, whether you raised your hand or not. The final word spoken over your life, everybody listen. The final word is not failure. The final word spoken over your life is grace. Here's why. God is a God who keeps his covenants. He'd made a covenant with Jacob that was totally up to God to complete. And if you're a Christian this morning, he's made a covenant with you. And God is a God who keeps his covenants. Therefore, the final word spoken over your life is not failure. It's not mistakes. It's not mess-ups. It's grace. God's grace always triumphs over human sin. So here's how we're going to close our service today, friends. We're going to come, confess our sins, come clean with our failures, and depend on the incomprehensible grace of God. Turn and cling to the triumphant grace of God as only found in the face of Christ. And that leads to my last thought. When faced with the personal failures in our families, we must cling to the grace of God which propels us forward to faithful obedience.